What I want to do in this paper is to revisit old anthropological concerns with continuity and change and to see what Kyrgyz felts in particular, but also Central Asian and Mongolian felts in general, can reveal about this notion. I'm interested in, in how tempting it is when we're dealing with material culture to think that we can read artefacts in ways that might suggest the continuity or change of social and cultural practices. And I'd like to see if there are ways that we can explore the relationship between anthropology and history through material culture, which don't ignore the place of people in the discussion and don't fall into the old traps of the past. In relation to Soviet ethnography, I'm not arguing that the local textile imagery provides us with relics or survivals of past practices in the way that Soviet academics like Snesarev or Polyakov um, proposed, uh, and nor am I suggesting that only past practices contribute to local people's views of the world in this region. But the past is important both to people in the region and to the anthropologists who work with them. And indeed, while in the Soviet period it was often desirable to sever one's present and one's future from the past, this is now an ideology that's being redressed. So understanding the processes through which the past idea or through which past ideas hold resonance and are reconstituted for those who live in the region now is of value. And I want to see if it's possible to explore this through material culture, specifically felt textiles created or produced in a domestic environment. While I've worked with Kyrgyz uh, women felt makers over a reasonable period in mountain regions of Alator in, in Kyrgyzstan and also in Tajikistan in a region called Jurgatal, um, more recently I had to develop a study of felts in general across the whole Eurasian region from the Caucasus to Japan through study in museums and archives, for which I had to come to a much broader understanding of the historical processes at work, including, for example, uh, nomadic group formation and different forms of migration, alongside the development of different felt technologies and the imagery used in making felt, and that's, this is what's inspired this paper. So the next section, or the first section, is called Eurasian Felt, the Material and the History. Okay, just, so I think you need a little introduction. What is felt? So felt is a non-woven textile. It's created through the use of properties of wool, which result in fleece shrinking and bonding together to form fabric when subject to hot water and friction. And this makes no use of bonding agents, no glue, no spun or woven thread. And you can see what's happening here is that on the... Here, the... Raw fleece, dyed fleece is laid out, somebody's heating up water, it's all rolled up, people then pick it or horses pull it and drag it, and the friction and the hot water affect the, the wool in such a way as to, to create a kind of textile that's transformed through an inherent property in the wool. Um, for pastoralists in this region, felt is a signally important textile and it uses only sheep's fleece, available, obviously, from the herds, people's herds. It, it involves a very easy-to-transport technology, and it provides fabric for tent and floor coverings, for containers and clothing, and it's also insulation from cold and wind. So you can see here on this, all the whole of the floor of this tent is covered with different felt carpets. And it's been used over millennia by herders of the region from the Caucasus to Mongolia, and groups who still make felt in the region today uh, albeit far less than in the past, include Turkmen, Uyghur, Uzbek, Kyrgyz, Kazakh and Mongols, as well as related groups from the Caucasus. As I deepened my research of felt from the wide Eurasian region within the museum context, what struck me in visual terms was the coherence and persistence of, of the technology and also of specific motifs in felt made by herding women in this region over a very large timescale from before 500 BCE to the present. And this included not just similarities between Kyrgyz felts and felts from early archaeological sites, but also similarities and differences between contemporary felts made by neighbours and also by distant and apparently ethnically distinct groups. And while I, obviously I know that you can't presume that because there uh, appears to be a continuity in material culture practices that people in the past thought or acted in the same ways or for the same reasons as they do today, it seemed remarkable, given that Central Asian pastoralism is a mobile and fluid process, that their felt-making techniques and designs had such coherence. 
This paradox is heightened when you consider the ongoing attempts during the Soviet period to transform the traditional into the modern, along with current anthropological concerns about the fluid and hybrid and processual nature of so-called traditional practices. So my aim in the paper is to address this paradox and to attempt to incorporate within my analysis a Central Asian pastoral perspective as well as a UK academic one. And I hope to achieve this through showing how in Central Asian pastoralism movement through both time and place uh, in conjunction with a particular relationship with the environment forms a context for the creation and recreation of domestically produced felt textiles. The, uh, the most famous examples of archaeological nomadic felt in this region were found in the Paziric tombs in Siberia by a Soviet archaeologist and ethnographer called Sergei Rodenko. Now housed in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, these felts, the one on the left, um, for example, date from 450 BC. And in terms of technique, my interest was drawn immediately to parallels with the positive and neg negative mosaic work used on felt shabraks or saddlecloths from Paziric um, and the similarity to that the techniques used on Kyrgyz and Kazakh Shirdak and Sermak felts. There's a very specific way also of using colour com complementarity, um, which I mean by which I mean the opposing colours on the colour wheel to create vibrance. So on the left-hand side you have this kind of red. Uh, for example, here you have red with blue, and then you have yellow threads. Um, so you, you already have a kind of a zing because of the red and the blue, but then you have yes a third colour which adds extra. Um, sort of zing as well, and, and very similar colour practices are used on this Kazakh felt, for example. Furthermore, the uh, contorted, animal-inspired quality of these patterns is very similar to some contemporary Kyrgyz patterns, especially um, the repeating pattern of the heart transforming into a ram's horn, which is known as juruk, and the umai pattern, um, which is uh, umai's everyone in Kyrgyzstan these days describes it as the goddess of the hearth who only has one wing. And that's, uh, I'll sh show you that, it's next one. Um, this little pattern going down here, this little pattern here, it's a hearth goddess. Discussed also on the 7th century AD, um, Orkhon inscriptions and stones in South Siberia. Now, Similar historical parallels, but using different techniques and imagery, are also provided by felts from the known Ula excavations from north of today's Mongolia, uh, from 1 CE, which illustrates significant similarities with contemporary Mongolian-style felts. Here, in terms of technique, quilting and facing felt, felt with silk brocade, um, along with the use of monochrome felt, um, are all similar to contemporary Mongolian practices. In terms of pattern, in both cases, there's an emphasis on geometric pattern forms. Mongolian felt is unique in the way that its patterns depend on the continuous rhythm of quilting, which is how all these dents are made, um, for both its understated repetitive imagery and also the strength that this brings to the felt textile. Now, in relation to these apparent regional and historical similarities, <coughs> Soviet ethnographers and historians such as Ivanov, Bernstam, and another um, also uh, academic called Studenetskaya from the Caucasus all drew attention to the common features of felts between different Turkic-speaking pastoralists. Oh, sorry, I just actually wanted to add this a little bit. Yeah, there's very little, little, very little evidence material evidence of felt between 0 AD and today, apart from the examples I've just shown you, except for just some odd things like this 8th century AD shoe from a rubbish tip collected by Earl Stein, and then paintings illustrate uh, the kind of carpets that people have. These are from an Uyghur um, miniature painting in Xinjiang in China. Um, but apart from the odd thing like this, there's very kind of little information, <coughs> except for also... Um, uh, a whole lot of trade records from the Mongol Empire, um, particularly the time of Kublai Khan, which is completely different and completely, in a sense, throws my story and tears it into pieces. But I, I want to share it with you anyway, because here they have these incredible workshop felts, where felts of carpets of great size, um, nine, 92 metres square, silver net felt, white, white velvet felt, 
felt for needlework, felt sacks, felt underwear, six different quality felt for trousers, blue coloured felt for small wagons and so on. All these things, these trade records, have all these kind of dockets, which uh, one particular um, historian called Hans Bitter did all this research, very fortunately, and kind of dug all this information up from this period. But um, aside from this, um, there's really very little evidence. So, to, to, anyway, to kind of go back to the... Uh, the kind of Soviet scholars' line on all this. Um, <coughs> the scholars I men mentioned, Ivanov, Bernstein, and also Studenetskaya, were very interested in, in the apparent visual links between felts from the Caucasus, um, like the top piece there, and Kazakh and Kyrgyz felts at, at the bottom. And, and their argument was that uh, they, they saw this, these similarities as lying in the possible ethnogenesis of these different Turkic groups. And, and they considered that they all grew out of the Kipchak Confederacy of the 9th century CE. And then a kind of similar argument can also be drawn about similarities between the, uh, the, the way that Turkmen people make felt and the way they decorate it and the way that Uyghur people make and decorate their felt. They now live a very long way, way apart. Um, Turkmen from Turkmenistan, Iran, Afghanistan and the Uyghur in Xinjiang and China. But both of these groups historically were together in the 7th century AD as both were part of the Oghuz um, Confederacy and separated as different branches of the Toghuz Oghuz. So these kind of things are, are discussed by historians and these kinds of um, relationships are drawn. And then more contemporary examples raise similar questions. For example, why do Kalmuk Mongols separated from the main Mongol nation living near the Caspian Sea, continue to make felt in the Mongol style? And why do Altai Kazakhs in Mongolia retain Kazakh use of colour and cut-out felt despite long-distance separation from the main Kazakh nation? And most particularly, why is there such an apparent continued contrast between colourful cut-out Turkic-style felt and monochrome quilted Mongolian-style felt which appears to um, kind of mirror the contrast between the Pazaric felts um, and the uh, Noen Uber felts from like 2,000 years ago or more. So all these kind of examples are quite provocative to historians or ethnographers, especially from the Soviet period, who are interested in cultural links or in thinking about cultural transmission in a linear kind of way, as if such techniques and motifs are communicated from the past to the present through intentional design. They suited Soviet ethnography very well, concerned as it was with ethnogenesis and, and social evolution. But they do also present a challenge to a more processual approach to cultural development, in that there does seem to be a persistence of such cultural forms which appear, appear to have willfully defied the fluid and transformative processes of cultural change that we've come to expect. So the next section is called A Movement Point of View. <clears throat> a real man, said Devlet, does not grow things or live in the village. A real Kyrgyz man wants to live in the mountains, ride a horse and keep sheep, taking them to pastures. A real Kyrgyz man wants to have ten children, not just five. This remark, <coughs> made in a casual conversation, may seem to illustrate a romantic Central Asian notion of nomadism rooted in the past. But... I'd like to argue that such comments, spoken from the heart, also reflect a common historical, social and environmental sense of what it is to be a pastoralist in this region, and the relevance of movement, land and animals, for the way that many local people who work with animals still think about their histories and ways of being in the world, despite the ongoing changes of the past 80 or so years. As such, this comment, I think, has real, not just a metaphorical, significance. In what follows, um, I'd like to attempt to show how Kyrgyz pastoralists and other pastoralists in the region have a particular appreciation and perception of time and space, which is, I argue, fundamental to understanding the ongoing coherence of their visual imagery in felt textiles. So just to begin, the Kyrgyz and Kazakh word kerchman means literally moving people, and it stems from the root word kerch, meaning to roam, travel or migrate. Kutch also means caravan. Kutchbashta means to start to migrate. Kutcher means street. I do use the term 
nomadic, but not lightly, um, because I'm aware it can be romanticised, but I consider that until recently, uh, or until, until recent sedentarisation, for many pastoralists in this region, movement was not seen as a deviation from a sedentary norm. It was the basis for a way of living in the environment that was qualitatively opposed to it. It wasn't a position adopted when a default position of being settled wasn't possible. So the next section's caused, uh, called Moving Through Time. And in terms of movement and time, uh, I first want to look at or examine t two aspects um, relevant to this. And the first is the past migrations of different nomadic carnates, probably for at least 2,000 years. And secondly, I, I want to consider how time is told. In relation to the past great migrations, since pastoral nomadism began in the region, which probably 800, 1,000 BC, nomadic groups have expanded, moving out from their pasture heartlands, attra attracting other groups to their banners, forming allegiances, often not just of kin or neighbours, but forming multi-ethnic carnates, even empires, extending their influence across large regions of the steppe and then withdrawing. For example, the Mongol Empire, led by Chinggis Khan, included Mongol, Turkic and Tungus-speaking people. The coherent visual legacy of the art which we saw on the Pazaric felts that I showed you earlier um, was known as the animal style art by regional scholars and this was argued to be illustrative of a much wider steppe art of the 8th to the 4th centuries BC in the region and has been taken by Soviet scholars as evidence for a of a first nomadic empire with unified cultural practices from the Ukraine to Mongolia which is then often people then draw on Herodotus and the work of Herodotus chapter 4 to back this up. When such groups later disbanded, allegiances might hold or break, or new dynasties might form. Some groups carried on as before, others absorbed into other clans as distant relatives, legitimated by genealogies or sanjara. Thus the dynamics of pastoral nomadic group formation in this region is actually very fluid, involving exchanges and continued realignments. Kyrgyz ethnographer Abramzon describing it as akin to crystallisation. But at the same time, ethnic groups in the region retain strong, quite definite senses of their history and identity, which they memorise and convey to subsequent generations through genealogies, even while often transforming their living arrangements and allegiances. This historical dynamic obviously adds to the puzzle about what underlies the apparent coherence of Central Asian felt production through time, and it challenges the way that many scholars have assumed such cultural forms are communicated, which was usually linking specific patterns to clans and groups, and transmitting them through one, usually male line. If groups have regrouped and realigned through history, the stability of regional felt textiles form, of regional felt textile forms in this region is all the more surprising. And then this is further compounded by the lived domestic practice of felt making across the region. Because across the region, felt is made by women who bring their mother's repertoire of techniques and motifs with them when they come to live in their husband's home in these patchwork local societies, moving between seven generations um, each time. The path of communication of technique and pattern is thus through women who move location when they marry, rather than through a fixed male line. The actual practice is one where women work in groups, they share patterns, they borrow each other's techniques, they copy motifs that they like from other women, um, and they do this rather than ever aiming to duplicate any previous design exactly. There's always usually a lead woman who usually has an idea of the designs that they'll draw, but the aim is to create or build a sense of a pattern in a whole rather than the exact reproduction of a previous piece. There's also no precise plan in relation to available materials. Colours often run out before patterns are complete and new shades have to be introduced. Women never use stencils or pattern outlines and others, uh, nothing is ever directly copied unless for felts made recently uh, for, for catalogues, for example, introduced by NGOs when customers have to get exactly what they've ordered. When stitching uh, and cutting Kyrgyz shirdak felts, which is a cut and sewn form of felt making, women still at times work in groups, although sometimes there's one person who is an expert, will draw for other people and then go away, and that woman might sit at home all winter sewing herself. But still, um, 
there is this acknowledged expert who can draw and cut the patterns and, and does often lead the proceedings and, and people then of all abilities may often take part, um, each taking a particular section and following a similar pro working process really to that of apprenticeship where younger and less experienced stitchers often learn through observation and imitation rather than direct instruction. In Mongolian felt making, work is also carried out uh, through an improvisatory form of mapping out the designs with ochre rather than the use of patterns or stencils. And in both cases, the process of drawing and sewing felt between generations of felt making people is one conducted through practice and generally in groups, more a process of what Liz Hallam and Tim Ingold describe as cultural improvisation, drawing on a repertoire of cultural motifs and techniques rather than reproduction or transmission of specified cultural forms. In relation to the intergenerational communication of felt making, it's not exclusively women who make felt, although this is the usual way. Sons and even husbands also contribute ideas and make suggestions and give physical assistance, and some sons actually take it on themselves and, and make a whole piece. Not all daughters learn, some simply don't do it, but if they express an interest and show an aptitude, then they'll be shown, and if they want to have one for their wedding, then often they collaborate with their mum on working, it, working on it. From the Soviet period onward, uh, onwards, with more women going out to work, less women have made felt or shown their daughters how to make it, and so less felt is made. Although contemporary developments such as, for example, NGO export companies, tourist art and so on, illustrate how such practices continue to be adapted and emerge in new forms, which I hope I'll have time to show you at the end. Thus, the domestic pathway for the creation and recreation of Eurasian felt traditions cannot be simply a reproduction of forms and techniques through a linear, history, a linear historical pathway, since, practice, since such practices emerge in the production and creation of felts between groups rather than any system of exact cultural transmission. Here, forms and techniques come into being in the activity itself, and while drawing on both tacit and embodied knowledge and many historical references, this knowledge is continuously regenerated through both regional population dynamics and through marriage and movement of women. So how can this process explain the ongoing coherence of motifs? Okay, so I think that the beginnings of an answer um, can be seen in my second temporal theme, which is the process through which people themselves have told their own histories and cultural ideas in general, um, until very recently through oral epic poems, songs, riddles and tales. And although much less commonly practised than before, Central Asian epic poetry still has a role on special occasions, communicating the past through poets singing and re-singing their stories to local audiences, who themselves may intervene and contribute elements which confirm or restructure the poem. And epics are told in different forms by different groups across the region, Uzbeks, Turkmen, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, and even Tajiks, uh, all, of whom epics, all of whose epics actually overlap, so that episodes are shared between some groups, suggesting points of historical convergence and also separation. So poems from each region contain elements of stories told in other regions through which the intertwining nature of each group's past is revealed. Sung at weddings, at local houses of culture, or on a grand scale by cultural troops, epics are told and retold, but not simply replicated. The singer doesn't aim to exactly reproduce the word, words of former poets, but rather uses key elements, themes and phrasing to as assist each newly created and improvised version of the poem. So thus no two performances of an epic are ever the same, even when sung by the same singer. Rather than producing old forms exactly, the singer produces, improvises around a known and different evocative themes which bear strongly on the past. These are core themes like, for example, birth stories, battles, feasts, council meetings, the birth of a horse, and, and this kind of thing, which form the inspirational base and anchor point for past and future performances. While new elements are frequently added for new audiences and dignitaries present, many are one-offs, but the core themes remain, and although reworked and improvised, will appear on most tellings. I think the continued retelling of oral epics reveals a particular relationship between myth and history, since the story that's told is remembered and related in different ways, growing and changing as life changes, as singers change and as audiences change. And on the one hand, they tell timeless tales, uh, and certainly when Kyrgyz people tell you of events uh, in the past, 
you, you're told that the, the Kalmuks came over that rise over there, and you're thinking, when did this happen? Did this happen 15 years ago? And then, and then in fact, the, story, the way the story is told, it's actually evoking often things that happened a long time ago, um, as if the kind of insights that, that you get from, from the tales um, will kind of remain forever undiminished, uh, and as if events happened only yesterday. But on the other hand, the importance of genealogical accuracy, which is a feature of epics as well as genealogy, shows a deep concern with the way in which the present and future grow out of the past along chains of historical connectedness. So epic singers might improvise around themes, but they also see themselves as carriers of history uh, and therefore will also argue that they're, they're saying exactly the same thing every time and it was exactly what so-and-so, so-and-so said. Um, and through this, they build up this kind of distillation of cultural knowledge and, and patterns for communicating it. So, for example, the first Kyrgyz president after independence, President Akayev, announced that in the Kyrgyz epic Manas, there was all that the fledgling Kyrgyz state needed for its new ideology. But if epics tell the greater story about being human, carrying historical details, but also social and cultural patterns and working on many levels and having possibly many meanings, then this improvisatory, multi-layered approach to history could, I argue, be equally applied to the creation and recreation of Kyrgyz and other felt textiles in the region, and may go some way to account uh, for their consistency and coherence through time. Patterns, I'd argue, are perhaps like elements of epics. People draw on them, redraw and reconfigure them. Images of Lenin or Stalin might be added, or hammers and sickles, or ram's horns may subtly transform into leaves, but the core themes around which the imagery is improvised remains, as does the core aesthetic of balance and positive and negative um, design and the dynamic, vibrant nature of the design. So this then leads me to a discussion of what, in my view, inspires or generates the kind of aesthetic and imagery in Central Asian felts, and that brings me back to movement, but this time through space, through the environment and with animals. So the next section is called Movement Through and Within the Environment. So I've already argued earlier on that movement plays or has played a significant role in what it is to be Kyrgyz, and I'd suggest that it has similar relevance for other pastoralist groups in the region. The most characteristic form of movement today is the annual migration, which is bound up with animal movement, an annual, role, an annual round of travelling with animals from winter pastures to spring and summer pastures and back again, until the yellow wind blows and people move back down to the autumn and winter pastures. Since sedentarisation programmes from the 1930s, this cycle has clearly been interrupted, and herders now overwinter in villages or use winter houses, kashars or zimovkas in the mountains, but travelling with sheep... Um, through these different pastures is still the most productive way of managing this landscape. Collectivisation also means that new networks alongside those of kin might be involved. Um, so uh, the situation, for example, where specific pastures belong to specific families that parallel the collective farm organisation of pastures was the case where I did my fieldwork, but it wasn't that everywhere. And of course, privatisation and the move to the global economy has been changing this relationship very rapidly. But still, in many cases, there are still some key features of migration which continue. And one of these is the careful organisation of the migration, um, this, uh, which is, is very, very important. And migration is very much tied to place or a series of places through land which people belong or belong to and through which they move every year, unless, of course, they've been kind of moved from their collective farm. Um, the routes are marked by different kind of features, uh, graveyards, mazars or saints' tombs, ancestors' graves, springs and rocks and so on. If one place is most valued, it's usually the summer pastures, the gylo that holds, certainly in Kyrgyz sensibilities, a unique and special role, place of clean air and health and nourishment. It's their motherland and the place where they'd like to be buried if they could when they die, even if they now live in the city. Now, not only is migration practiced with very specific views about land and the significance of certain places, it's also organised in a very dynamic way in that people have a detailed awareness of seasonal patterns and variations, animal migrations and mating patterns, weather, movement of stars and so on. And they don't so much plan ahead as be prepared and are ready so that when circumstances come together, they're able to move almost immediately. So, for example, one very good um, informant in the field said to me, 
Our Karankoja, wild sheep, don't mate according to the stars. If they mate in the valley early in October, spring will be early and good. If they mate late, uh, if they mate late in October, spring will be late. Reindeer Bugu, on the other hand, mate according to a group of stars called Urkur, the Pleiades. Many things relate to these stars, and so on and so on. I suggest that this understanding of movement and relationship with the environment is relevant to the production of material culture, including felt, on several counts. Aside from the actual dynamics of living in movement, which may or may not affect the dynamics of production and the vibrant visual quality of the imagery, there are two quite tangible insights that I think can be drawn, firstly from people's acute observation of specific features of their environment, including animals, landscape, uh, weather and so on, and then secondly, the relationship between the everyday and the sacred, which is, relationship, which is illustrative of the kind of relationship that people have with animals and the, the environment in general, um, and, and is often manifest in a specific um, understanding of destiny and balance, which are const generally um, quite often articulated when people are talking um, about their relationship with the land, as I'll come on to show. I think it's not just, this isn't just a case in naturalistic terms, it also reflects a very specific understanding of nature and the place of humans within nature, which is implicit in pastoral, the pastoralist relationship with the environment in the re region. So on the one hand you have people's closely honed knowledge of the environment and its inhabitants, which are drawn into the imagery used in felt textiles. And on the other hand, the role of animals and specific features in the specific features of the environment bridges people's understanding of the everyday and the sacred. They're kind of reflected in both the sense of balance in the composition um, and also um, they're incorporated into the, the, the element of destiny is incorporated into the, the kind of framework uh, through which it's set out. And it's particularly easy to illustrate in relation to Kyrgyz and Kazakh felt and their use of positive and negative balanced imagery, but it can also be seen in other regional styles. In relation to balance and destiny, I, I, I want to illustrate this through showing how many Kyrgyz herders consider their destinies to be very bound up with, um, for example, uh, the actions that they have in relation to animals uh, or in relation to places. Um, and, and this is, could be illustrated, for example, in the sites, uh, in their relationship with the sites that they go past um, when they're migrating. Um, and, and these sites, um, whether they're saints' graves or stones or waterfalls, um, are regarded as inhabited by powers. And uh, these powers have the capacity to act intentionally and they can intervene in human lives through their generative power and they have the ability to affect human well-being. And this, is, um, this perceived connectedness between human well-being and powers in the environment, I think, is, is, is illustrated by what Yukutatani um, describes when talking of pastoralism in this region and he calls it the Central Asian ideology of nature and he argues that in, in Central Asia uh, pastoralists, the pastoralists approach to the environment is actually very close to that of northern, northern hunting people which he argues reflects a kind of historical relationship or convergence between the two groups so that for example between Kyrgyz and Efeni beliefs there are a range of commonalities illustrated by uh, similar deities and animal keepers such as Bugu Enye who's the mother of the deer, the keeper of herds uh, and these kind of um, mythical characters and, and mythical stories which overlap. In, in discussing the environment with informants in Kyrgyzstan in relation to how they hunt or herd, my informants described their way of hunting and herding um, in the Kyrgyz Alator as balance or harmony. And I have had harmony with nature said to me in these terms. And although these kinds of descriptions might sound romantic, they're, they're constantly reiterated in different terms, uh, so that one, well, it's, it's always obviously very difficult to know exactly where this is coming from. But, but again, Humphrey, Caroline Humphrey, and the Mongolian anthropologist Seren similarly describe such an approach to uh, working with animals among Mongolian herders as balance with nature. And this notion of balance, in, in my understanding, reflects a view of the environment or a relationship with it, which is frequently held by herders in the region, where humans are one participating element, and the outcomes of their life projects impact on and are affected by other elements within it. 
And I think this, as I understand it, this perspective interpenetrates how herders treat their environment. It affects the relationship that people have with domestic and wild animals. And it affects how they name the landscape, how they use animals as food, how they use the interior space of the tent. And it impacts on the way they create designs, I think, in their material culture. The mechanics of this relationship are discussed, I think, quite effectively and well, particularly so, by Robert Hamayun, following the Russian anthropologist Vasilov, who suggests that for northern hunting people and nomadic pastoralists in Central Asia and Mongolia, hunting in particular is interlinked with human health, prosperity and well-being, because to ensure a successful hunt, animal souls must be repaid in the form of human souls. And in this process, the shaman has to negotiate between animal masters or mistresses for an abundance of animals in the hunt, which then has to be repaid, if not by illness and death within one's own community, then from another. Hence the importance of balance or harmony, and the link between human destiny and the wider environment. A typical example from my field work was illustrated when the daughter of one host family became ill, whereupon her father was told that he'd been hunting too much, and that he had to stop hunting, and that he had to put his rifle in the family trunk. So I want to go on now to sort of talk through how these ideas of destiny manifest in uh, felt-making practices in Central Asia, when women construct designs and draw specific patterns onto their felts. In relation to destiny, I can give two examples from my fieldwork where friends have stated clearly how this is involved. One particularly key informant, Kenjay, for example, who made this felt here, said that each woman's felt was different. And when we talked of her marriage felts, uh, she talked to them in terms of how the idea or aims in the felt um, was related to each tabak. And the tabak is the, this. Sometimes they're cut out separately, and sometimes they're just part of the design. Um, it's a compositional element, so that each tabak, and it's usually three, contains um, the past, the present, the future, but it also contains, it also contains the family through which these came her old family and her marriage family and her future children. The Kyrgyz word oi means idea, and it's oi is also the root uh, word for oyung, means cut-out pattern. And Kenje looked at the details of the pattern, and, and as she looked at them, she'd talk about how the whole design is like fate, as if her future's mapped onto it, how many children she'd have, grandchildren, deaths in the family, and so on. She said she'd intuited these meanings, or she'd dreamt them. And obviously this is just what she says, it's only one person, um, but I, I think that this is interesting. And also, you know, from the quilting, you can see the quilting that she's done, there's little hearts everywhere, like there and there. From the quilting that she, where she'd stitched in hearts for her hope for her marriage to the, um, the more traditional um, classical ramshorn techniques, the entire Sherdak embodied her hopes for a fulfilling future life, and it also held, in her view, what fate had in store. And in order to do this, it also contained her past. Second illustration came from an extra sense woman, a kind of person who um, told the future, from a different village again about Sherdak, this cut-out form of felt. She said, In the pattern of Sherdak, each tabak is the family, the house, life, nature. Sherdak is like life, it doesn't finish. The old Karkirgis, which is a Russian name for, for the old Kyrgyz, send their ideas, their way of life, through the pattern, oyum. Through the pattern they send their philosophy and ideas, oy. She continued, everything is alive without end. The rocks, the air, the land, air, uh, water. Nature is alive. Children must be happy. The beginning of pattern is life, and it must be connected through the family, or nothing will be happy. That was her discussion. In relation to balance... A core aesthetic of Kyrgyz and Turkic design in general is its positive and negative quality and the way that pattern and background are equally balanced so that one is not aware of a motif but an overall interlinked pattern. So if you think about it and you look at all the red, you could say that was the pattern, but then the blue is also the pattern. There isn't a pattern and a background. It's, it's completely interlinked and it's completely balanced. So, and also, not only do the patterns outlines create both the inside and the outside of each motif, but also on the best designs, you just can't distinguish the motif from the background. Both have equal weight. It's impossible to separate one from the other. And this aesthetic also reveals the interpenetration of animal forms and other features of nature, 
as the designs literally flip backwards and forwards or inside and out. And I don't think it's actually possible to separate these aspects of design in a meaningful way. It, it's remarkable how skilled pattern drawers can exactly fill the field with pattern elements which continuously reveal positive and negative aspects of the same motif, while at the same time working in this improvisatory way. Only masters or Usta can draw the patterns. One such master told me that the only way she could do it was with her eyes closed. And also, and the other, quite, I think, very interesting feature of this is, of course, if, you, if, you, if you've got work, a pattern a felt with a kind of blue um, background and a red centre, then you've got all this waste felt, but that means that what you do is you then use the, the reverse image to make a reverse uh, centre field of felt. And so it, it, it's quite interesting the way that these things, uh, that the whole thing actually uh, means you don't waste anything at all. Just to go back to this for a minute, a minute just to remember me talking about the way that colour is often used to create kind of vibrancy. Um, the colour combinations really and the outlining of the positive and negative pattern forms and then also outlining them again with rows of quilting um, has this kind of quite disorientating physical effect in similar vein to the work of the artist Bridget Riley in my view. It's a kind of Bridget Riley effect. And then when one, I'll just go back now to Mongolian felt, um, they use their white background indented with rhythmic quilted motifs in quite a similar way. And I know it's actually, initially one would think, oh no, this has got nothing to do with what I've just been talking about in terms of the balance. Um, the top motifs are kind of good luck motifs, but um, the others here, again, they're completely interlocking. Um, I think they're kind of disorientating more in terms of kind of Isha-type uh, way, um, but certainly when you actually try and draw them, you, you, you use the same physical processes and practices, the same kind of understanding of inside and out, and they both have this similar kind of um, relationship of field to background. It's a kind of gestalt effect about it. Okay, so if the aesthetic qualities um, of composition relate to balance and destiny, then the sort of final part of this really is about almost final part, um, I think links back to the relationship between people and their kind of closely honed understanding and awareness of their environment. The majority of motifs comprise animal forms, either of hunted or herded animals, especially on Turkic felt. Turkic felt being that on the left there. And these include rams and goat's horns, antlers, crow's feet, bone motifs and bird's wings. On Mongolian felt, on the right... Um, aspects of nature such as clouds and ripples and parts of the body are more prevalent but a core motif on both Turkic and Mongolian felt is the ram's horn found on all Turkic felts in multiple combinations and usually on the corners of Mongolian sherbet so what I mean by the ram's horn is that and in Kirk's felt it's got a bird's foot in the middle and here you've got on this Mongolian felt you've just got this little ram's horn to fill in the spaces The ram's horn in particular um, is intertwined with almost all pattern forms in felt design, um, especially in, in Kogus felt, and it reflects the importance of sheep and bone into many aspects of life, uh, sacred and mundane for pastoralists in this region. Among Turkic and Mongol people, sheep bones and ram's horn are used in multiple ways. So sheep shoulder blades are used in divination, sheep's knuckle bones are given to children for luck, and they're used in games of chance played by adults and children alike. Um, sheep's forearms are suspended above house entrances to protect sons. Ram's horns, you can see here, are put on tent exteriors for prosperity, uh, or they're sewn on uh, in, in squares as felt amulets, and so on and so forth. And at celebratory meals, specific cuts of meat called ustakan, each with its own name, are distributed uh, around peop uh, to people in parallel to the way that people are seated in the tent, which itself um, is, is, is a way of, of people are also seated in the tent in, in relation to their specific social relations and status. So this always, uh, you could say that bones are used to convey the very specific social relationships at the table on any special occasion. And the very term for bone, Sirk, also means relative. Uh, among Kazakh and Mongols, um, actually the, it's used to refer to different branches of their nation as the black and white bone. 
When I asked one informant in the field why the ram's horn was so important, uh, she said that the horn was the man and the heart into which it transformed was the woman holding him up. But much more tellingly, perhaps, um, oh, sorry, that was just an illustration I wanted to give you of eating, where everybody sat in relation to status, uh, men, on one, men on one side, women on the other, um, youngest at the door end, which you can't see, and the oldest at the, the very sort of top. Much more tellingly, anyway, um, when I was eating my ustikan, a cut of sheep, at a celebratory meal one day, I commented that the, that's my meal, the, uh, the cut of sheep that I had, the, the backbone in this case, evoked a particular Kyrgyz pattern called kial oyun, which is actually this pattern here along the bottom, which means dream pattern. And that it had the, <coughs> had the ram's horn within it. So I thought it was really interesting. How could somebody notice this? How did it have this ram's horn inside it? And the, the reply of my host was, yes, it is Kialayum, and the ram's horn is the backbone. Everything comes from the backbone. Um, now, I'm not going to um, necessarily draw any conclusions from that, but what I, I want to do just for the last five minutes um, is to kind of look forward now and see where we're going in the future with this. And so far... The main thrust of my argument has been to reveal some features behind what I see as a kind of ongoing temporal and spatial coherence of felt design in nomadic felts in Central Asia. I'm not sure if it's ever going to be possible to pin down exactly the kind of spatial differences and spatial parallels um, other than that like the kind of coalescing and crystallisation of groups in the past at times specific visual aspects of design come to the fore. But even so, I just think there's some sort of interesting things to show you. So, um, just going through the kind of Russian, Soviet, post-socialist era. Um, this is an a extraordinary, I think, piece of work. Um, Kazakh Tusk Keys, uh, wall felt, it means Tusk means wall, Keys means felt, from the late 19th century in, in the period of the Russian conquest. Um, these aren't, this kind of design isn't made at all now. Uh, in, initially, to me, it, I, it looked very much as if there was a huge amount of Mongolian influence. It's in the north of Kazakhstan, the northeast. It's very closely linked to Mongolia. When you actually look at it really close up, it's actually just an incredibly fragmented, uh, incredibly finely cut out um, sort of... Um, it's, it's made from felt. It's a wall felt. Uh, and it's incredibly finely cut out. series of very ornate... Um, ram's horn and plant patterns. Um, kind of moving south, same era, uh, or just after, um, similar, similarly also made from felt, another Kazakh Tuskies, um, but with highly decorated gold thread, uh, another incredibly ornate piece. Um, a lot of these really extraordinarily kind of highly worked pieces made in the Russian era and then this is very, very recent, um, from Karakal, Pakistan, but from a Kazakh family there using gold lame on their felt. And, and then in, in Kyrgyzstan, Tuskis changed completely, and they stopped being made from felt completely. They were made from cloth and ikat, um, but they're still called Tuskis, even the word keys meaning felt. They're still called that, but they still have these patterns embroidered on them um, in very... Um, sort of similar kinds of patterns, although at times there's all these little kind of details like um, Stalin and Lenin and, and the kind of local leader. And um, very, very recent Tuskis in, in Kyrgyzstan, in Jogatal, was this is made by a woman who just returned from the Hajj, from going to Mecca with her family, right in the south, of, beyond the south of Kyrgyzstan, completely different in a way, using totally contemporary pieces. If, you, if I could show you another story about... Um, Tajik and Uzbek embroidery, uh, this would perhaps make much more sense, but I think it's a really interesting piece. And then going back um, to Kyrgyzstan during the Soviet period, when women were given medals if they were very good artists, if they were very good practitioners for their neatness and so on. And, and in this one particular region, there, it had this incredible reputation for doing really different designs from anywhere else. And it, these amazing little buttons... Um, called Topchu, Topchu Sherdak, Button Sherdak, um, and, and like kind of building 
extra borders on borders and so on. Um, and then one particular person there had this special reputation. I couldn't find a photograph of her, I'm sorry. Um, I just couldn't find it before I came. But she made these uh, shedaks called Kapaluk Shedak, which means butterfly shedak. And actually the whole region is well known for Kapaluk Shedak. And um, everybody said, oh, it's because of the influence of China. It's because of the influence of China. And then when I went to meet her, she said, no, no, no. And she got these um, embroideries out of her bag, um, which were done in Bulgarski, which is a kind of cross-stitch, Russian cross-stitch. And she said, no, you see this, and this is my mother did this, and so this is how I made all my designs. And, and actually the whole region has these, this design because she draws them for everybody in the whole region. Um, and so this is a sort of another way this whole thing changes. And then when one goes to the Altai region of Mongolia, where Kazakhs and Mongols live, then the only region in Mongolia, really, uh, where Whitefeld has colour added is the region where Mongols and Kazakhs live in close neighbourhood. And so you also find this is, that was uh, Mongol, Torgut Mongol felt, uh, and then Altai Kazakh felt, but here they've actually incorporated these Mongol designs. So there are these kind of interesting... Um, collaborations as well. Back to there. Um, again in the Soviet period in the 1960s, some people went to art school. A very famous Kyrgyz artist, Umetov, he went to, to Moscow to study there at the Russian Academy of Arts. And there he's incorporating, uh, well, as I say, very few men do make film, but he's incorporating influences from his mum and, and uh, obviously from Matisse, um, and he's still doing sort of rams and, and so on and so forth. Very interesting. I have to just put this in because I have to emphasise that without sheep in the mountains, there would be no felts, and a lot of the pastures are becoming very degraded at the moment um, for various reasons. Um, contemporary tourist felts. Um, interestingly, again, Mongol tourist felt, Kyrgyz tourist felt. A uh, big, big thing in the Asian fashion scene um, now, incorporating felt into silk. Um, very, very popular. And the Kyrgyz are, and, and also Kazakhs are just incredibly dynamic. They really are, I think, leading the forefront in, in terms of fashion. And, and then also um, Kyrgyz designers coming to the UK, Altanoy Smoyev from the centre from. Kyrgyzstan now at Central St. Martin's, she very kindly lent me some of her uh, sketches uh, for designs that she was making in her work. 